0: My name's Dr. Gary Crotas, and I'm a coach and author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life, and you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times, and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlocked Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. Today, I'm privileged to be joined by California-based coach and self-styled strengths encourager, Wendy Willard. I'm a huge fan of Wendy's philosophy around strengths and needs and have been co-moderating online conversations with her for much of the last year. Wendy has spent the last two decades working on initiatives that improve well-being, Personally, that's brought her deep in the trenches of child welfare, initially as a mum to two daughters, then also as a foster parent and adoption advocate across three U.S. states and Nicaragua. Professionally, it's meant she uses her Bachelor of Fine Arts in Design and Masters in Organizational Leadership to help mission-driven organizations and families strengthen their teams to thrive. Wendy, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to the Unlock Moment.
1: Thank you, Gary. I'm so excited to chat with you today.
0: Thank you for joining. So start out with telling us a little bit about your story and how you got to where you are today.
1: Well, how much time do you have? <laughs> we've
0: got uh, a while. Give, give us a sort of five-minute version and we can dig in.
1: Yeah, so recently I've been thinking about what is the thread that kind of combines, or if there's a thread that you could pull that would... Um, Pull on everything that I've done in the you know my adult life. I think that that really is well being. Uh, I think that even uh, if I go back 20 years, I can think of some of the projects that I worked on as a designer, and I was always interested in how we could improve well being through our work, through the work that I was whether it was a web design project or branding or marketing for a certain company or initiative. Uh, it, that's just been something that really interested me. And I was mostly doing that as an individual contributor, you know, in, um art director, creative director, um, graphic designer, web designer, that type of work. And then about seven years ago, which corresponded with turning 40, I decided to go back to school. My daughter made fun of me and said it was a very... Uh, midlife kind of crisis moment. Um, And I said, I am going to study organizational leadership uh, because I, I had come to realize that creatives have a different way of looking at the world. And I loved I've always loved being in a room of creatives. It's just super fun. I, you won't be surprised to know I have high ideation on Gallup's uh, Clifton Strengths assessment. So, I I just thrived in situations like that. And I I also found though that creative people uh, think we just think differently. And when you put us in a position of leadership. That means that we, uh, we approach problems in a, in a different way than someone who has a straight MBA, for example. And so I said, you know, I'd love to put a little teeth to my education, my on-the-job training, so to speak, and figure out why, why is that? Why do creatives um, approach the world different, approach problems different? And that was where I was first introduced to Clifton Strengths as well. Um, was in that leadership uh, program that I did that master's level program.
0: And when you're in that, so why why organizational leadership? So so what was going on for you that you thought that's you know of all the things I can do, that's where I want to go?
1: Yeah, for sure. I because I definitely several people said why not just get an M- MBA, and and I said well I'm not as interested in what it looks like to kind of structure the business or, you know, the accounting and all of that. I'm more interested in what does it take to build a great team? What does it look like to structure an organization so that the team, so that you really get that one plus one equals three type mentality, right? That, that we're greater than the sum of our parts together. So I was interested in that at at the time that I went back to school I was actually working at a large church in <laughs> the Bible Belt of of the US in southern Cali uh, sorry in South Carolina I now live in southern California but I was in South Carolina at the time and I my role was a creative director and communications director and so uh the team there was about 55 people at the time and I found, you know, I realized once again that the creatives and the communication people, you really are, that's a hub for most organizations, right? And you have a piece, your hand is in a little bit of everything and you tend to, um, to get to understand very cross-functionally what's happening across the organization. And so it really inspired in me this idea of, Hey, I I want to understand this better. I want to, um, I want to move more into leadership and I want to do so um with uh yeah with with the education to kind of back up what I had learned on the job.
0: And, and and what do you think a great team looks like? What are what are the characteristics of a of a great team when you're imagining that that setup that you're helping to create?
1: Yeah, well, it's it's funny because you you kind of teased it in the, in my bio, but uh, one of the things I've been working on, I mean really for the last like twelve years is this exploration of needs. What do we need to thrive as a human? Um, what do we need to thrive as humans in teams? uh what does that look like? And so I think that my answer is gonna be the same for or very similar for um individuals as it is for teams. uh so I think uh the individuals inside of the teams need to have their needs met in order to thrive. And then they need to work with each other well, right? Trust one another, um, appreciate the the best of one another in order for the team to then thrive. And thankfully, I don't have, you don't have to take my word on that because Gallup has, you know, created a, they've done a ton of research and created a lot of resources and they're not the only ones, you know, there's plenty of places where you can see that this is in fact true.
0: And one of the reasons why I was so keen to have you on the podcast is because I I really like your take on needs, which, which describes what you're talking about now. What are the, what are the needs that people should have in when when they're individually and as a team working really effectively um, but also i know you think about what it looks like when you when you don't have those needs and, and i'm reflecting for, so for listeners who've also listened to um the recent episode that i've just published with dr mark goulston who who is a psychiatrist and talks about a similar thing he talks about what it feels like when your needs are not met in a very specific sort of uh environment in psychiatry um I think that's a really interesting way to look at it because all of the textbooks are filled with what it should be. But actually, when you go and work with organizations, and I've done this a lot, you see a lot of teams that are exhibiting and describing the opposite of that. So tell me a bit more about the way you think about needs.
1: Yeah. So probably to, to tell, to describe it, I have to go back a little to explain kind of where I came to this because most people, a, a lot of listeners will have heard about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Uh, that's definitely something that is taught in schools in a lot of cases and at university. And so people hear about that and they understand, okay, yeah, we all have these basic needs. One of the things that I found out, um, interestingly, is that Maslow's research was done um, at a time when you mostly studied uh, men, white men uh, that were of a certain socioeconomic class. Uh, If you wanted to look at what it took for people to thrive, you would, you know, look at that type of that group of people. And as it turns out, I was a foster parent in Maryland starting at t- in two thousand eight and the type of kids that were coming into my home were almost the exact opposite of the type of people that Maslow was researching when he was coming up with his hierarchy of needs uh, we've mostly parented at this point now we are we currently have our twenty fifth uh, teenager in our home, That's and uh, the first two dozen of those were were mostly teenage girls, uh, and we now have a young man staying with us who, yeah, a young man who just turned eighteen recently. So I'm I'm really excited to have some to see the other side of it as well, and and what does it look like to parent a, a boy? But But anyway, we had all these teenage girls living with us, um, certainly not all at the same time, but over the course of several years, I'm just noticing, um, you know, they had a lot of the same uh, behaviors that most of us would classify as bad. (laughs) Uh, And social workers would classify, they would say, oh, they're dysregulated. Uh, you know, whenever they would be behaving in a way that wasn't accepted, uh, you know, normally as kind of normal behavior, well, they're dysregulated. And that, while that describes their behavior, it's not something that anybody, let alone a teenage girl, wants to be referred to as, right? Uh, and you don't walk around saying, oh, I'm feeling dysregulated today. It, it just any it has diss at the start of it right it just it's it's a bad word like it makes it makes you feel yucky yeah. uh and so i started um my solution to that was well let's come up with another word let's just make up our own word that is different that you feel okay with using and um and so that sort of set me on this journey of what would you know in the beginning we just made up whatever words you know like you do with your kids you just say whatever um but eventually i started the more that we had kids like this in our home and the more that i considered my own needs as a human and what does it look like when that's not met the more i wanted to really come up with a real word you know something that actually meant something so that was the impetus of me creating this word SLATHY, uh, which you've heard me refer to a couple of times before. That's spelled S-L-A-T-H-Y, and it's actually an acronym. So take so that
0: uh, for us. So what, what's in SLATHY?
1: So yes. So uh, each of the letters in the acronym, well, the first five letters stand for the opposite of what it looks like for a need to be met. And and I I basically I did a ton of research. I asked a ton of people including a lot of these kids that lived with us and you know I said what do, what do you need really to to have optimal well-being. And I found that they could all fit into five buckets. And so the first one is worth. And this is what we put in this bucket, your purpose, your value, your plans, and your hope for the future, right? And so the opposite of worth is shame, I think. You know, this is one thing, one way that it comes out, the opposite of that. So the, the S in shame is the F in, S in slaffy. Um, so that's the first one. And then the second one is love. And I always like to say that the ABCs of love are acceptance and belonging and connection. And as I learned through these kids in my home and so many other people, you know, that doesn't have to come from your family of origin. You can find acceptance, belonging, connection in many other places. Uh, and so, but the opposite of love is, is loneliness. And so that's the L in Slassy and then the third one is trust and this is one that i really think we don't give enough uh credence to in in our culture because our culture is based on mutual trust and i think a lot of us have seen in the last two years what happens when trust breaks down and uh and yet we don't we don't often think about it it's just so in um in you know it's it's just so woven into the fabric of our culture that we don't take a a step back and recognize when trust is broken, how much that impacts us. So in this category, I put um, safety, shelter, and security. Can you trust uh, for those things, for example? Um, And so the opposite of trust is one, one opposite of trust is fear. Uh, So being afraid, the A is is uh, in slathy. So we've got the shame, loneliness, afraid. Um, and then the fourth one is rest. And so inside of this, I put, you know, um, physical, emotional, spiritual peace uh, and rest. And so the opposite of that obviously is tired. <laughs> and uh, so that's the T in slathy. And then the last one is nourishment and this is nourishment for your body specifically in the form of food water and physical touch and so the opposite of that one is hungry and that's the h so that gave me s l a t h and then i grew up learning that i grew up learning a e i o u and sometimes y right so i kind of i kind of added that here that sometimes there's a y and the y stands for yucky and this has a dual purpose um maybe there's something else. Maybe there's illness going on in your life. And uh, so that makes you feel lucky, yucky temporarily uh, and also can make you feel slassy. Um, but also what I found with so many of the kids that have stayed with us is they know that their needs aren't being met, but they don't know yet which bucket that it goes into. And so the the why is like this catch-all that um, it can sit there until they feel comfortable, Talking about, or even just admitting to themselves, or understanding what of my other needs haven't been met. So that's the that's the quick version of where slathy came from. Uh, so I guess I should stop I, for a sec there.
0: I love it, and, and, and I want to talk about it because it's such a powerful and simple tool. But that idea that you flip around something that is. Describing what it what it is when it's all great, to let's have a conversation about how it really feels because it isn't all great at the moment. I think it's so simple, but it's easy to to miss that. And and as you described, it was a language that you didn't have when you were looking at things like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which which is the opposite. So so we're here to talk about an unlocked moment. So you know, or moments, but this this sort of flash of clarity at some point in your journey when you suddenly knew. This is the right path ahead. And I wondered whether you can bring to life, you know, where in your journey did you have that moment when you suddenly knew this is it? This is what I want to be doing. This is where I'm going. This is what it's about for me.
1: Yeah. And I think moments is is correct there. There's a few, but One that comes to mind is, um, really when this became personal for me. Uh, so, you know, it, it was easy, I think in the beginning for me to look at this and think, okay, I'm creating a way to talk about what happens to these other kids. You know, these, I was never, um, separated from my family of origin as a young child. So I, I wasn't, it was easy for me to say it's them and not me. Right. Um, I think there have been a lot of situations, though, in the last decade, especially where I've realized that it's me, too, that all of us, you know, have this issue. And one of the first times was when we were preparing to move to Central America and we had decided to go there for a year. And, uh, so we were renting our house furnished, but we had to get rid of all of our personal stuff inside of the house. And because we were flying, we could only take 50 pound bags, you know, essentially two per person and a carry on as you know, if you're flying anywhere. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and then we were going to put some other stuff into storage. And when we were. Well, I don't know about you, but anytime I move house, it do you always have those junk drawers like I do where essentially at the end of the, when you've been packing for however many days or weeks, you just pull the junk drawer out and you dump it in a box and then when you get to the new house, you just dump the box into the new junk drawer, right? Like and you or,
0: or leave it in the box.
1: <laughs> or leave it in the box, right? You don't ever really go through it, or at least I had moved enough times that that was my process. And uh I couldn't do that anymore. I realized, oh, there's that's ridiculous. And so, all over the house, I found these proverbial drunk drawers, and started create. I started a big sorting uh, facility, essentially. And through that process, I evacuated from my house two hundred and fifty bags or boxes worth of stuff. Wow. You know wow. that. That we had previously deemed, um, you know, required for life. And now I, we either sold it or gave it away or put it in the trash or whatever. And, you know, my my biggest kind of wake up moment there. Well, one of the biggest wake up moments was I found 30 toenail clippers. 30. Okay. Th- you didn't this have
0: so is- many toes. <laughs>
1: no we didn't even yes we were a family of four like okay wait so we do have that many toes I guess okay. but anyway I never thought of it that way you
0: didn't need a clipper for each one no.
1: <laughs> yes it was ridiculous because toenail clippers were the type of thing where it's like you can't find them anymore and you just it's like as my right. husband says it's just a dollar go buy it right mm. uh and but but this was kind of I've realized that this is the way that at least the culture that I, that I live in, um, this is what we do. We just, we just collect stuff. And I started to consider really what was going on with that, you know, like, why was I doing that? And I realized a couple of things. And one of them was that I think buying stuff for my kids was a way to show them how much I loved them. right? Right. But I, I realized that that was just setting them up to believe that you know happiness and love equals stuff, so that was not good <laughs> um, but then I also used to think that buying stuff on sale, even if I didn't need it at that moment, was this indication of my thriftiness as a wife and mother as if I should be given some sort of prize, right but I realized that I was just contributing to waste and, uh, that I should be more resourceful with what we already had. Right. So I also just, you know, to be vulnerable there, I think I, I recognized a tendency towards trying to earn love and acceptance. Um, and so all of that helped me sort of bring it into perspective that it wasn't just these kids that lived with us temporarily who struggled with their worth or their love or trusting people or um or rest or nourishment, but it was me too. And I think it's it's all of us.
0: And what was the transition from I recognize that I've got an awful lot of stuff that I, I I need to not hold on to to it makes me think something about uh, my needs and, and the way I want to live my life going forward and something a bit deeper. What was that transition between stuff and meaning of stuff? Do you think?
1: Well, and not everybody is doing this or going to do this, but for me, it meant living in a Central American country for three years, for almost three years. Right. I, I took myself out of, of that kind of stuff environment where, I didn't have access to Target or Walmart or Amazon, and I had to be very intentional about what I purchased and why I purchased it. Uh, And so, you know, it was one of those, I, I joked often that I said, I can't move back to the States until I learn how to live within five miles of a Target and not go there on a regular basis. Um, you know, not go there for just fun. Uh, so, um, I, you know, I, I had to. I think for me, I needed to be taken out of it in order to learn how to appreciate it. And I fully, I fully recognize that that's not something that everybody can do or or is going to do. But that was just my my journey with that.
0: I mean, I think, and it resonates because I mean, if two things that I think about when when you're saying that. One is. In the pandemic, I think, with a lot of people, you know, staying at home more than they were before, not traveling in to, to the office, not traveling into work. And, and that also means that you're not doing a lot of those other things that you might do when you're traveling. So, you know, having a relatively expensive lunch, you know, somewhere or, you know, going to a relatively expensive night out because you're with your work colleagues, all those kinds of things. And I think for a lot of people, I've certainly t- t- talked to a lot of people who've you've had that realization that they don't need to do that to be happy in their life. But it's nice to do it sometimes. Um, But the other thing it's making me think of was actually last night. So I live just north of London here in the UK and there was a really major power cut uh, last Mm -hmm. night for about two or three hours that took out a large chunk of the whole region north of London. So thousands and thousands of homes lost power, lighting, water and mobile phone signal. And it wasn't like you could walk down the road to the next street where there was power and get a mobile phone signal. There wasn't mobile phone signal for miles and miles and miles around. Mm. And, I, and, I was, and I was walking up the street because I was due to record a podcast, actually, in New Zealand, of all places. Um, and I couldn't email them to let them know mm. that I wasn't coming on the recording because I didn't have anything. Um, and I suddenly realized that what it feels like to be dependent on a mobile phone signal when you don't have one and you can't have one. Um, So it really resonates. And and I do think that a lot of people have had that sort of recognition of um, the difference between what felt like a need but actually isn't a need. And that's your your toenail clippers. It feels like you desperately need some right now, but actually you can get away with not having some for for a while. And why, why are you in Nicaragua?
1: Uh, We, well, initially, we just, it was, (laughs) people think we're a little crazy, but uh, we felt like it was something we should do. We felt like it was, uh, is something that, you know, God was calling us to do. We didn't go with a particular mission or ministry group or anything like that. We just decided we were going to go for a year initially and see what happened. uh, See what, you know, where that led us. and. We did end up connecting with a lot of people. We realized that uh, there was this massive need that wasn't being met, and that was for kids being adopted from, at the time, from Nicaragua into another country in order for me, for example, from the U.S. to go to that country and adopt a child, I would actually have to live there for several years. No, sorry, not several years, several months. So anywhere from three to six months, you're essentially fostering the child in the country before you can take them back to your country, your home country. So there are um, you know, maybe two dozen, I think, countries that still require that. And what happens so often is families are living in hotels for that time period. And you can imagine. A mom, maybe it's a mom and a dad that go initially, they, they meet this child. Often they are, you know, maybe anywhere from three to 12 years old. Uh, so they're speaking, but they don't speak English. And eventually the dad goes back to the US and this mom is left there with one or more kids who don't speak her language and she doesn't speak theirs. And it's really hard. And you can imagine trying to live in a hotel room doing that, not having transportation and uh, and so we we started coming across these people and realized there was a huge need that if we wanted the families to actually go home intact <laughs> that they needed a lot of support so we started an adoption support ministry there that wow. we um we eventually did shut down a couple of years ago when Nicaragua closed two uh, international adoptions, or at least two adoptions from the U.S. Yeah. So we ran that for a couple of years.
0: Yeah. And you were there with your own children as well?
1: We were. Yes. Yeah. We were there with our girls uh, for uh, about two and a half years. And then we left the organization in charge of uh, a Nicaraguan family family. Um, and they ran it until we had to close the the program.
0: And then coming back to the U.S., having had that experience of you and and your whole family there for for a significant period of time, how did it change your perspective when you came back into American culture, American society?
1: Oof. (laughs) Yeah, the reverse culture shock, I think, was actually uh, worse than if I can say that. Yeah, I think it was worse. Uh, something very interesting happened in the years between two thousand and twelve and two thousand and fifteen um, and there's been a bunch of research done on this that two thousand that during that time frame was when the smartphone became kind of ubiquitous in the u s and uh and so when we before we left, my kids were in fourth grade and sixth grade before we left. And they were still very much, they didn't have phones. They were going to their friend's house after school, playing in the street, visiting friends for sleepovers on the weekends and whatnot. And then we come back to the U.S. and they're doing, you know, um, end of seventh grade and end of 10th grade. And um, the world had changed. Uh, Kids, everybody had a phone. Kids got together together. Mostly online, or they would get together in homes and they would sit on their devices next to each other and play games that way uh and they didn't even really do sleepovers as much it was It was a very different world that than we at least socially for our girls, it was very different than when we had left and so even just looking at like worth and love and trust and how you know our kids' needs were really struggled when, when we came back and what that has looked like, I think for all of us in the last 10 years, looking at how social media, uh, and the smartphone, how that really impacts our ability to have our needs met.
0: So you had to, I'm hearing, I think that you had to work quite intentionally to reintegrate in a, in a kind of way, particularly for your, for your girls when, when they came back, having been out of the country for that particular window of time.
1: Yeah, it was, it was really interesting. I think we saw it. Uh, think about when you if you have a niece or a nephew, and you don't see them that often as as certainly not as often as their parents do. And then you see them after a couple of months, you're, oh, they've grown, or you notice what has changed. Um, I think we were better able to notice what had changed, because we had stepped out of the culture for almost three years, and came back in, whereas it was a very slow change for everybody that stayed here during that time.
0: And going through that experience for you and, and and thinking about this whole philosophy around needs and the work you're doing with it, what do you think you've learned about yourself from going through that experience, do you think?
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I still, when I facilitate team sessions around this and when I talk with individuals and and I love to work with families, you know, I always ask which of these areas do you think is the strongest for you, and which of the areas do you struggle the most? Um, and and so I've of course had to take a hard look at that for myself, um, and and I think it's it's for me it's been a lot of the worth. Um, how have I tried to earn my value uh, rather than understanding just you know my innate value? uh, as a human and, you know, accepting that, uh, versus trying to earn it, um, has been something that I've, I've definitely struggled with throughout my life.
0: And what I really resonate with, I and I hear in you is that you are anyway, a very reflective person, very self-aware person, but you've gone through these particular experiences as well that have, Caused you to spend a lot of time reflecting on on yourself as a foster parent, you know, traveling and and taking your family with you and so on. Um, so, what if you were to give advice to other people? I mean, not not that people necessarily want to spend time giving advice, but if if you were sort of to reflect on some of the things you've learned that you think other think other people might find helpful, what, what what do you think comes through from this focus on on needs?
1: Yeah. So you know one of the other kind of aha moments or unlock moments as you call them came uh shortly after covid hit uh i i had been teaching this concept of these needs and slathy i had been teaching that mostly to foster parents and adoptive parents up to that point uh you know just that was my application of it mostly that was how i had come across it and developed it and so that was where i was teaching it and then after covid hit i started hearing from others from some of those parents who said you know the world needs this right now like i <laughs> you know someone said my workplace in particular i'm i'm noticing when we get on these zoom calls everyone's laughy but but no one knows how to talk about it and if you ask your colleagues well how are you doing the the number one answer that you get is probably, well, I'm tired, but I'm okay. You know? Uh, and, or, or just, I'm fine, which we know where you're not fine when you say you're fine. Right. Um, but, but I, but what I was realizing was, again, this is really just widely applicable. And so I started hearing from people saying, my workplace needs this, you know, could you, could you do a team session with my workplace? and that really changed my focus and it broadened my focus here and helped me realize do do foster kids need a way to talk about their 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 needs in a, you know with dignity and privacy yes but so do people in workplaces we we all do right we want a way to come into work and to be able to share with a colleague that you know i'm not doing great um but when we use the word slathy it allows you to have to maintain privacy you don't have to tell them which of your needs isn't being met right it's just i'm feeling right now i'm feeling like i have unmet needs and um and it also gives you a way to talk about it that's really neutral it's you know it it's not like i mean i don't even think we have a good way to do this right now so i don't even know how to correlate it but uh but it allows people to do so to talk about this in a workplace setting in a way that, um, I think maintains dignity and privacy and honor. Um, go and ahead. I was reflecting
0: on some of the people that I've been working with recently in, in coaching. And I think that piece about ubiquity is really important because, um, you see it in all sorts of different environments, workplaces, entrepreneurs, artists, performers, you know, um, so you're saying, you know, uh, in 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 the fostering community, you're experiencing it, and and it's also independent of seniority. So I think there's a lot of people who are in very senior roles who are used to looking at the people around them and seeing this veneer of coping and managing because that's what senior leaders look like. Sometimes because they are, but sometimes because they're really practiced at looking that way, even yeah. when they're not feeling that way. Um, and particularly at the moment, I was talking to somebody just today actually about some of the challenges in um you know i do quite a lot of work in the retail industry and some of the challenges in retail that there are so many things that are completely outside the control of the senior leadership and the thing that you're most certain of is that however good it used to look it'll never look that good ever again so the best you can possibly be is almost as good as it used to be and the Mm -hmm. worst you can possibly be is way worse than it used to be and that's a huge pressure oh people, yeah actually and i said to one of my coaches um just become more aware that probably almost everybody around you is feeling in some way the same yep. they just won't say that to you yep. necessarily, um, and they won't necessarily look that way but it, it just is true that you know that, that conversation is happening all the time
1: yeah and here's the irony right I've I've asked plenty of people this so I know this this is true. We all think that we're always bringing the best of us to work, right? We think that when we show up at work we're showing the instagrammable version of us, right? And yet, it's not true we all know the worst of our colleagues we we see it seep in it leaks out right you know what your colleague looks like when they're hangry for example uh, you we just do you know what your colleague looks like when they haven't slept well the night before but we don't talk about this and what i'm trying like my biggest goal in all of this is to help normalize that conversation that we can say guess what sometimes the closet is open, so to speak. Sometimes my, the worst of me leaks out and shows, now what are we going to do with that? Right? How can we approach it with compassion with, for one another? How can we have less judgment? Because that's how we're going to get to the other side of this. That's how we're going to actually get to the point where the best of us comes out more often than not.
0: It's such a powerful conversation and I'm so pleased that this is exactly why I wanted you to come on the podcast to to give this message. I think it's a really powerful one. And I think that the Slathy concept is is brilliant. And I think more people need to hear it and understand it and internalize it and use it. And, and I think that, that that's that's really that's really important. So as we look to the rest of twenty twenty two, what what are the things ahead for you? What are you what are you focusing on?
1: I don't know. I, t- I think when we talked on Clubhouse in January, and you, I think you asked, "What is the the word of the year?" or something, or maybe it was Dana. But I, uh, I have said that this year my word is curiosity. I'm I'm really just trying to be open to new things, to um, to to explore, to be curious about where all of this takes me uh, you know, I, I'd love to expand the reach of this, of, of slathy of, I'd love to have more of these conversations. Um, and I'm, I'm just excited to see where, you know, where that takes me.
0: Fantastic. And where can people find out more about you?
1: Well, I did finally register slathy.com last year. Uh, so that's s l a t h y.com and uh, there's a link at the bottom to my strengths work also which is I call myself the strengths encourager as you said and so that's the strengthsencourager.com and I just want to say that if you if you fill out the little um, email sign up at the bottom of slathy.com that I will send you some questions you can ask yourself to, to just quickly, or not so quickly if you want to take more time to do it, but to evaluate those five buckets of needs in your life and, uh, and to kind of consider where, which ones maybe do I want to work on or focus on.
0: Fantastic. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity. When You Suddenly Know the Right Path Ahead. For Wendy, it was realizing that life is more about fundamental needs than it is about material possessions. Working with foster children, and adoption support helped her to find a way to connect with people around those fundamental needs and when they're not present for you, and to start life-changing conversations with people that unlock incredible potential. Wendy, thank you so much for joining me on the Unlock Moment.
1: Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Gary.
0: This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotas. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset, available in physical book, ebook, and audiobook formats. Follow me on Instagram and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Join me again soon.